Well, before I begin, I should welcome all of those who will be listening to the message online. I understand that the parking lot is overflowed to capacity, and some of our regular attenders may have been discouraged by the overflow of vehicles and decided to walk home, because walking home would be closer than walking here into the banquet hall. So if you've never listened to a message online, you can do it right from our website. It's easy. You can click the play button and a little uh, media player will shoot up, or you can even download it to iTunes and put it on your iPod and listen to it in your car or anything like that. It's a great way to make sure that you stay in touch with the series throughout the summer months, especially as a lot of people are on the go. Well, as Brad mentioned, this is the second to final message in our series in the book of Exodus, and we've been charting each message by looking at uh, the different stories in Exodus and by summarizing them through a variety of our t-shirts. So to give you a sense of, of what we've talked about so far, our first week, as we looked at the first message in, in Exodus, was the, the picture of the reeds, and uh, the, the message there was the understanding that God's radical provision flows to those who risk big for his mission. That's what Moses' mother did when she put him in a basket of reeds and floated him down the Red Sea. And our second message was the burning bush. And it was this understanding that God can do extraordinary things with ordinary things. Took an ordinary man, Moses, who had a number of flaws, a speech impediment, was definitely very scared and had a bad reputation amongst some of the Egyptians for the murder that he had committed. And he used him as his spokesperson to Israel and also to the Egyptians. And then our third message uh, we had here, our, our picture of the sun and the bricks. And Pastor Brad reminded us that sometimes things get worse before they get better. And it was the story of how the Egyptians said, oh, you want to be delivered? Well, guess what? No more straw for you, and we expect the same amount of bricks for you to to create and to build. And and we see that there's this story that continues, that there's this friction between uh, Moses as he's, he's speaking from God to Pharaoh and this power play. And sometimes things get worse in our life before they get better. The following message after that uh, was about the plagues. And that's what we had this understanding of what happens when we have a hardened heart. And we looked at what happened to Pharaoh and, and came to that point of a hardened heart is slow to listen. And how Pharaoh, it took him 10 plagues before he would finally relent and obey what was being requested of him. And then, of course, uh, we had the, the story of the Passover, which happened at the 10th plague where the angel of the Lord passed over the Israelites' house when they put the blood of the animals over the doorpost. And as uh, Pastor Brad reminded us in that message, there's rituals and rhythms in life that help us remember God's provision in our lives. Just as Passover is an annual event that that Jewish people remember, uh, we need to have things in our lives that also help us remember how God is faithful to us. And then last week... Mike was our speaker, and and we looked at one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible, the passing through the Red Sea, and how God uh, let the Israelites go right through the Red Sea. They passed on dry ground. And that brings us to our story today, which is in Exodus chapter 16. Now, as a child, I grew up with the reputation of being a picky eater. And I think I gained this reputation because I was a picky eater. At large family gatherings and at church potlucks and at these big banquet tables and feasts, 
there was piles of food in every variety. There was salads and pastas and vegetable trays and desserts and, and breads and casseroles. And I remember the adults spending more time talking about how good the food looked, how good the food was going to taste. They spent way more time talking about it than they actually did eating the food. And I hated potlucks. I hated potlucks because it gave everyone a chance to look at what was not on my plate. The only thing worse than an adult inspecting my plate and questioning why I did not have a specific food on my plate was the overeager adult who didn't ask if I wanted it and then plopped this big nasty food on my plate. And then I had somehow to figure out how I was going to get rid of this, which is even more difficult because an adult was always looking at it. So I quickly just developed a strategy as a kid. My idea was to get in and out of the potluck line as soon as possible. Get in, grab the food, and keep going. When there was long lineups, it was the worst because you couldn't get past the person in front of you. You just stood there with an empty plate the entire time. But I'm, I was pretty good at this. I'd get in, I'd get out, and then I would retreat to the kids' table because kids are far more forgiving about what you choose not to eat than adults were. So I'd go to the, to the kids' table, and I'd have my, my plate, and I'd usually divide my plate into three sections. I had my dinner roll, I had my Cheetos, and I had my Jello, And I was happy, and that's what I would eat. Now, even though I was seen as a picky eater, I had a reputation as a picky eater, I did not have the reputation of being a complainer. I didn't complain about the food, really, much at all. In fact, what I would do, what I would choose to do, is I would just simply not eat. If the food was there and I didn't like it, I just wouldn't eat it. That's how I created such an imposing physique as a child, by starving myself, because I didn't want to eat the food. But usually, there were times, instead of complaining, where I would grumble. Now, grumbling's a little bit different than complaining. In my mind, grumbling, and actually a definition of, of, of grumbling here, is sort of like a mild complaint. You stifle the complaint just a little bit. Complainers, usually their objective is to make sure that everyone else is unhappy because of their own unhappiness. That's what complainers do. Grumblers are just a, a little bit more polite about it. They kind of eh, mumble to themselves or, or they, they keep it in to themselves. And that's usually what I did. I was a, I was a grumbling child that not, did not always like the food that was offered. A friend of mine was also a picky eater as a child, and I would classify him as a complainer and not as a grumbler. Here's the difference. His mother was concerned that he wasn't eating, like pretty much every mother is of, of their child. And so his mother one day said, what do you like to eat? Can I make a list of the foods that you're willing to eat? And so he obliged with her request, and she generated a list. Included on the list were waffles, pancakes, and hot dogs. Well, dinner came the next evening, and this boy had his head down on the table, and he was crying. His mom said, what's the matter? And he said, there's no food on the table that's on my list. He thought he was going to get one of those three things every meal for the rest of his life. It would have been a great bargain. But sadly, it didn't happen for him. Chances are you know at least one person who complains about food. And if you don't, you probably know at least one person who complains about something. As people, we're pretty good complainers. We complain about not having enough stuff. And then once we get enough stuff, we complain about not having enough room in our home to store all of our stuff. We complain about not having enough money. 
And when our earnings increase, we complain that the government is now taking too much of our money. We complain about the injustice that we suffer without recognizing the ways that we benefit from injustice every single day of our life. Even though we live in one of the most beautiful places in the world, we somehow find a way to complain about the weather. We complain about not having the right clothes to wear, but we complain even more about the clothes that we do have to wear. And we find a way, of course, to complain about the traffic. We are very, very accomplished complainers. In fact, complaining is so much part of our life that we create new ways to complain to as many people as possible. We call that Facebook. Now, strangers who don't even know us, they can hear us complain as well. Complaining is so common that on the rare occasions in life, when you meet someone who does very little complaining, they are seen as just this unusual person. I have a few family members like this. I almost never, ever hear them complain. It's refreshing to spend time with them. But they are the minority. Complaining sort of feels like a way of life. Today's story in Exodus 16 is about a bunch of complainers. Now, if I didn't tell you the text, I could say, our Bible story is about a bunch of complainers, and you can say, oh, what story out of the 66 books are you talking about? Because the Bible's story is about people, and people are complainers. I mean, we could be talking about the disciples who were complaining. We could be talking about some of the prophets who were complaining. Pretty much everyone throughout all these stories, they're complainers in one way or another. But the Israelites, the Israelites are probably the best complainers out there. They really raise the bar when it comes to how good they can complain. Well, our story is in Exodus chapter 16, so if you have your Bible with you, uh, please turn to that text. If you don't have your Bible with you, make your way over to the Welcome Center and pick up a Bible and you can follow along in that way as well. I'm not going to read the, the story this morning. I'm going to summarize it. And there's going to be some Lego illustrations up there on the screen, which has been a, a great resource to us this summer. If you've not looked at BrickTestament.com, it's a great, great way to see the story in a very different visual. Well, as we summarize just a little bit, last week Mike was teaching, and he, he taught about the crossing of the Red Sea. And so to get uh, the Red Sea, to get us up to speed a little bit on what's going on through the mind of the Israelites, uh, it'll be helpful to, to kind of get a sense of what's happening. The Israelites have gone through a number of different fearful situations. And Mike talked about that, about how every time they're overwhelmed with fear, God delivers them. Early on in the story, they are slaves, and God delivers them from slavery. And then all the terrible plagues come. It would make anyone freaked out of their mind, all these supernatural plagues that are happening. And yet God protects the Israelites. It doesn't come to Goshen where they live. It just affects the other Egyptians. And then finally, as, as Mike said last week, the Israelites, they leave Egypt, and now they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And you can see them up here. They're crying out, what are we going to do? The Egyptians are coming, and all we have next to us is the water. And yet God delivers them once again. They were terrified, and yet God takes care of their fear. At the end of that story, the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, the Bible says that when the Israelites saw the great power that the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. But that seems like a, a very timely statement because it does not seem to last very long. Exodus chapter 15 is a, is a poem. 
It's a song written by Moses and his sister Miriam. And they sing about how the Lord has delivered the Israelites with a strong and outstretched arm. They sing about all these wondrous things that God has done for Israel. But then, in chapter 16, the mood seems to change just a bit. So if you have your Bibles, begin looking in verse 1 and 2 for the context here. The Israelites continue on their journey. They pass through the Red Sea. And the narrator tells us that they reach the desert of sin. Now, this is the English word of, of the desert. It, it, this would be quite the story if, if this was, you know, you might think, wow, there's going to be a whole lot of debauchery going on in this, this area. Well, it's actually, it's, it's the Hebrew word meaning the desert. So it's really just a name. We can't learn too much about the name of this desert. But they get there, and instead of singing this great song that, that Miriam and Moses have written and they've led the people through, they've changed their mood. And the, and the writer here in the story says that now they are grumbling. The Israelites are grumbling. And the reason that they're grumbling is because they're hungry. And there's no potluck table out there in the desert. They're grumbling because they don't see any sort of food and they're afraid of starving, which is why they talk about wanting to go back to Egypt. According to what they remember, they say, we sat around pots of meats, ate all the food we wanted. And this has to be their empty stomachs that are speaking to them because they were just delivered from decades and decades, hundreds and hundreds of years of being enslaved by the Egyptians who were quite brutal in how they treated the Israelites. But they think with their empty bellies. They said, if only we could go back to Egypt. Why'd you bring us out here so that we could starve to death? And the storyteller tells us that the Israelites were grumbling, which as we talked about earlier, means kind of a a stifled complaint, just a quiet murmur of disapproval. Now, I don't know for sure, but my guess is that the narrator might be a little bit sarcastic. Maybe he's being kind to the Israelites by saying that they were just grumbling and not flat out complaining. Because this theme of grumbling is all throughout this section of the story. The chapter before, in chapter 15, right after this song, the story of the people, they begin to grumble because they do not have sweet water to drink. There's a story, they, what are we supposed to drink? This water's too bitter, and they grumble about it. In this story here, just between uh, 12 verses, the word grumbles used seven times. Their narrator's really harping on the fact that the Israelites are grumbling. And in the very next chapter, chapter 17, the people grumble again because they are thirsty. There's so much grumbling going on that Moses cries out to God and said, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, if the Israelites were indeed grumbling, they were what I would call aggressive grumblers. Their accusations are so extreme that we learn exactly what the Israelites are like. And we read that a bit in Psalm 78. The Israelites are faithless. Even though they walked on dry land with water raised up to their left and raised up to their right, and they passed through water, even though they saw all the Egyptians that were going after them die in the water, 30 days later, the narrative actually tells us it's one month after they've left Egypt, 30 days later, they have no possible idea how they are going to eat any food. They cannot trust God to provide them with food. Now, personally, when I feel that someone does not trust me, 
Or when I hear that, that someone has absolutely no confidence in, in my abilities or, or my character, I feel betrayed. I feel like giving up. I mean, seriously, what's the point? If someone doesn't believe in you, what's the point of continuing that relationship? What's the point of, of trying to keep going on if they've already admitted how they feel about you? I really don't think there's any better example of the feeling of betrayal and a lack of confidence than one of the greatest movie scenes of all time. In this scene, there's a character by the name of Admiral Mahdi, and he tries to convince his co-workers that they should feel confident in their new construction project. might sound like a boring movie to you, but the construction project he's talking about is the Death Star. Admiral Mahdi says this, This station is now the ultimate power in the galaxy. I suggest we use it. But of course, the Admiral's statement is refuted by a character named Darth Vader. He says, don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant compared to the power of the Force. To which the Admiral says, don't try to frighten us with your sorcerous ways, Lord Vader. Your sad devotion to that ancient religion has not helped you conjured up the stolen data plans or given you clairvoyance enough to find the rebels' hidden forces. And then, of course, this epic scene in this epic statement where Darth Vader extends his hand And he says to the admiral, as the admiral begins to choke, I find your lack of faith disturbing. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Put yourself in the position of Moses for a minute. You've been communicating the message of the Lord to your people. Plagues, miracles, crossing through the Red Sea, bitter water turned into fresh water. And now the people say, did you bring us out here to kill us, Moses? What in the world are you doing? If I was in that position, if I was in the position of Moses, or if I was in the position of God, how could you not look at these people and say, I find your lack of faith disturbing? Seriously, have a little bit of faith. The surprising thing about this story, the most amazing thing about this story, is that God does react to their grumblings But he doesn't respond to their grumblings as you and I would. He doesn't respond to it as you would think or you would imagine. In verse 4 of chapter 16, God tells Moses that he will rain down bread from heaven for the Israelites to collect and to eat. And you know what? They don't just get bread. They get meat too. The story tells us that in the evening, quail come and they cover the camp, which provides the Israelites with a really easy source of meat. They can actually just go up and grab the quail. Now they've got meat, and and they're getting bread from heaven. Now, when the people see the flakes on the ground, the storyteller tells us that they look at one another and they say, what is it? What is it? Now, thinking about a picky eater once again, they could have asked this question in a few different ways. They might have said, what is it? With this great anticipation and sort of confusion. Or they might have asked it like myself when I was young, what is it? What is that? We don't really know. What we do know is that Moses replies to the question, and he says this. He says that it is bread from heaven. So they end up calling this bread manna. And manna literally means, what is it? And they end up eating this bread for 40 years while they're in the desert. 
in the book of Numbers, which tells a similar story to what we have here in Exodus 16. It describes manna as white like coriander seed. We learn that the people would crush the manna into mortar, cook it into pots, and they'd make manna into cakes. Some of you may remember the songwriter Keith Green. He wrote a song in 1980 called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. It's more of a comedy song than anything. And he talks about all the possible recipes that the Israelites may have, may have made with manna, such as banana bread, or maybe manna burgers, or my personal favorite, manicotti. Now, we don't know how the Israelites prepared each meal, but we do know that God provided the manna to these people six times a week for 40 years, up to the very day that they entered into Canaan, the land of promise. And he provided it not to people that had their plate out with a big smile on their face and said, thank you so much for these preparations. He provided it to a group of grumblers. Now, this story is often used to teach on a number of different topics. In fact, if you read different commentaries, if you do Google Sites, you'll probably come up with a, with a number of different applications and why this story is important to us. We've already talked about how the Israelites have made grumbling into a hobby. But there's actually another theme in this story that comes to the surface, and it's the theme of the Sabbath. The people are told to gra- gather twice as much food on day six because on day seven, God says there isn't going to be any food here at all. And interestingly enough, they're told you should gather uh, this, this bread from heaven up to a specific amount, an omer, which is about two liters full. You grab your empty two-liter Coke bottle and you just fill that thing up with all the manna you want, and that's your allotment. And then at the end of the day, it's going to spoil. It's going to go rancid. But for this amazing way, on day six, you can gather twice as much, and in the next day, it won't go bad. And sure enough, there's no man on day seven. And the man they collected from the day before is still good. And what the text tells us about this is that God rests on the seventh day, just like he did in the creation story. And so he doesn't want to bother himself with work of providing them with more food. And it seems to prepare the people for the command to honor the Sabbath, which comes as the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20. But really, the point of this story is not about the Sabbath. And the point of this story is not about not complaining either. For all the times that we're told about the Israelites grumbling, there's not one time in this text, we heard it a bit in in retrospect in Psalm 78, but there's not any time in this text where the Israelites are scolded for complaining. It's really quite amazing. We don't hear it from Moses. We don't hear it from God. And you think about yourself, you know, you think these are faithless people and that their lack of faith is disturbing. And we don't get this message of, so stop complaining. Guys, stop grumbling. Instead, we learn that God provides them with what they ask for. Now, I would love to take this story, because, I mean, come on, grumbling and complaining, it's a problem in our world, right? I'd love to take this story, Exodus 16, and use it as biblical proof. Thou shalt not complain because of what we have here in Exodus 16. Now, there's some other biblical examples of why this is not a wise thing to do and how it kind of goes against being grateful, but we don't really see that in this story. Instead, this story actually tells us that one of the reasons why God provides them with manna and quail is because he heard their grumbling. He listened to them. It kind of sounds similar to the story that Jesus tells us about the persistent widow in Luke 18. The persistent widow kept going to the judge and asking for justice day after day after day. 
going and asking for justice. And finally, the judge relented. Now, this might be an application that you need to put to action this week. Maybe you've grown tired of asking God for something. Maybe you have gained the assumption that he's not listening to you, that he doesn't care, or perhaps that he doesn't want to hear you complain or grumble about it anymore. Maybe this story is the beginning of a new story for you where you begin speaking honestly to God about what you want, about what you need. The story teaches us that he is listening and that he will respond. But the biggest story, the the biggest point of this story centers on the very character of God, who is the ultimate character in this story. He's the the center point. He's the, the person of action here in this story. This story shows that not only does God withstand the complaints of his people, he actually responds to their complaints. And by doing so, we learn that God is incredibly gracious. The Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who delivers the Israelites out of Egypt with an outstretched arm and mighty power, is a God of grace. How else can you explain the fact that he provides his grumbling people with what they need to survive? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. And God gives the Israelites exactly what they do not deserve. He gives them bread, and he gives them meat. See, the Israelites had really done nothing. Nothing to earn, nothing to deserve what they were giving. After showing their lack of faith, they did not deserve free handouts. They deserved a lecture or a lesson. That's what I would have done. Obviously, you guys don't understand who I am. I'm the God who just saved you 30 days earlier. Are you forgetful here? You think it's too difficult for me to provide you with food or water? God does not lecture them. He does not prevent or create some sort of demonstration that will teach them some sort of lesson. He responds graciously by giving them what they do not deserve. And the Israelites aren't the only one who get something that they don't deserve. The Bible's full of stories of people getting what they do not deserve. Think about the story of Zacchaeus in the New Testament. Zacchaeus does not get what he deserves. Zacchaeus should have been punished for his sinful life of greed and injustice. And instead, he is sought out by Jesus. And he gets the Messiah in his home for a meal. And his life is transformed because of the grace of Jesus. Think about the woman at the well. If she got what she deserved, she would have been stoned to death. More than just once, too, because she was an adulteress. But instead, she was given the honor of talking with the Messiah. The prodigal son, if he got what he deserved, he would have gotten public shame for all of his foolishness. He squandered his inheritance. He brought ridicule to the family name. And instead, he became the honored guest at his father's banquet because his father was a father of grace. All of these characters, all of these stories, all because of one beautiful word, grace. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. When's the last time that you marveled at the power of grace? When's the last time that you looked at your life and you fell to your knees in awe and thought, I am getting what I do not deserve? When's the last time 
when you realize that you deserve far worse than what God offers to you? When's the last time that you've chosen not to give someone else what they deserve, but you actually choose them to give to them what they do not deserve, which is grace? So what we see in these early stories here with Israel is as they are receiving grace, they are beginning to understand their mission, their calling as the people of God, which is similar to what we find as the calling of the people of God through the church in the New Testament. This understanding is because we have received much, then the then we are implied that the direction is that we would give much because we are treated not as we deserve to be treated by God, full of grace and forgiveness and mercy, then we too should not treat people as they deserve to be treated. We love to say that in our society. And there's some truth to that. But grace actually provides us with what we do not deserve. It's continually being merciful to people over and over again. When's the last time you celebrated grace in your life? Now, it's interesting that in this story, manna, the bread from heaven, is a reminder of God's grace. And in the gospel story, Jesus also used bread to communicate God's grace. In the gospel story, Jesus gathers with his disciples for a final time, known as the Last Supper. And he takes bread that they're about to eat. He takes wine that they're about to drink. And he says, these are to be eaten drank together, you should do this in remembrance of me. Understanding the sacrifice. Understanding what Jesus gave to us. And so we're going to do that together to remember the grace of God that is offered to us. Our team's going to come up and play a couple of, of songs. And the communion tables are open. We celebrate communion here at Jericho Ridge and it is open to anyone who is in right relationship with Jesus Christ. And so whether you are young or old, whether you're going through difficult times or celebratory times, if you are in right relationship with Jesus, then please come to the table. Take the bread. Recognize that it is bread, but it is a a symbol of the grace of Jesus Christ. His body was broken for us. And take the juice, representative of the blood that was shed for us. The blood, the penalty that he paid so that he could offer us life, something that we do not deserve. And let's celebrate grace together.